I have a pretty vivid memory of one night when I was in junior high school. I was sitting in a theater with my parents in my hometown. We were waiting for a play to start. I don't even remember what the play was. It was the Walnut Creek uh, Civic Arts Theater. And it had been created, this is Walnut Creek, California, where I grew up. And it was created out of a former walnut processing facility. And it was affectionately known in Walnut Creek those days as the Nut House. And uh, I did a little searching on the archives of the town of Walnut Creek and found this old picture. It's long gone now, and they built a big, modern, beautiful thing now. But that's the, the Nut House where we were that night. I was sitting there with my parents, and as a junior high boy, I was waiting, I was wiggling, and I was being just slightly obnoxious. And I remember grabbing the, my father's glasses off of his face and putting them on. I slipped them on, and I looked up into the wires and the rigging up in the ceiling, and all of a sudden, I saw so much clearly. Things that were just sort of a blurry tangle all of a sudden became vivid and clear. I did not know until that moment that I didn't have very good eyesight, and my mom and my dad did not know either. I had no idea. My mom got me off to the eye doctor on my first set of nerd glasses that week. In fact, I just found a, I found my passport from when I was in high school yesterday, and I had the nerd glasses on then. Those are the ones I got. But anyway, it was blind spots for me. There was a blind spot, literally, that I didn't even know I had. My whole world shifted that day. I had no idea that I, I couldn't see well until I got these glasses. And all of a sudden, I could see the, the, the chalkboard much better in class. All of a sudden, I could see television much more clearly when I wore those. I didn't want to wear them all the time. I'd only pull them out of my pocket when I wanted to see things at a distance. Finally, by the time I got to high school, it became kind of futile. And then I got contact lenses, long gone are the nerd glasses. But anyway... I had blind spots I didn't know I had, and all of a sudden I could see things clearly. Everything shifted in a matter of minutes, and really that week when I got my first set of glasses. The story that Mark just read about Peter is Peter becoming aware of some blind spots that he had. Peter becomes aware in a huge way, and, 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 and then it, the shifts that he needed to make then to move in a direction that God was moving him in. It was a total shift in perspective for Peter after having this vision, this trance, and meeting up with the people that came from Cornelius who had also been visited by a messenger of God. A huge shift in the way that he saw things as blind spots were removed. The series we've been in for the last several weeks is called Shift, and we're following up on the theme of Chick, the youth event that our, many of our students went to last summer in Tennessee. And what are the little shifts that we need to make to be closer to what God is doing? What are the little shifts that we need to make and the big shifts we need to make in our perspective to be more and more the person Christ has called us to be, to be more and more like Jesus himself? We've said this each week, but the, uh, we say it again, that the journey of discipleship moves us in the direction of becoming more like Jesus. And they're asking the question, what shifts are needed then in our perspectives on God, our perspectives on ourselves, on each other, on the world, to help us on our way? So today we're wrapping up the series. Next week we're going to have kind of a Thanksgiving celebration, and two weeks from today we begin Advent, if you can believe that. But uh, today, as we wrap this up, we consider a shifts into action and we first of all are going to look a little bit at the story and the perspective shift for Peter that happened there. What was this perspective shift for him? And then what it might mean for us as the church, and by church I mean church with a capital C, a perspective shift that's needed for the church today, ministering and, 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 and reaching out in this world that we live in now. And then finally, bringing it home to a perspective shift for ourselves. What's the perspective shift for me and my own blind spots? 
So it's a perspective shift for Peter. It's a great story. I love this story. Um, and, I, and, and it's actually the entire chapter. It's over 40-some verses. So I just had Mark read through 23, and you're encouraged to read the rest of it. We'll refer to it. But it's a great story of God speaking in the lives of two men, two men to draw them deeper into what God was doing in the world. It was drawing them deeper into what God was doing in the world at this point when the gospel was just beginning to spread. God was helping both of them deal with their own blind spots and giving them new ways of seeing. Cornelius is described as a Gentile believer. He's a Roman centurion, and he's described as a very good man. He, he has an awareness of God. He, he believes in God. He doesn't know exactly who he is, but he believes in God. And he's a generous man. He, he gives generosity to those in need. And he is a praying man, he's described as well. But he couldn't see. He was blind to the fullness of God's plan unfolding in Jesus because he didn't know about it. And as a Gentile man, he'd been kept apart from the promises that were given to the children of Israel. So he was blind to the fullness of God's plan unfolding in Jesus. And then there's Peter, who's been radically changed by the gospel. Peter, who is the witness of the resurrection, has been turned around by that. Peter, who is the one that gave, gave, gave meaning to what happened the day of Pentecost, uh, still does not have a large enough vision for what God wanted to do through him and through the church. He'd heard it, but it had not come home to him. There were still blind spots for Peter. So in Acts 10, Peter finds himself meeting this non-Jewish officer in this pagan Roman city of Caesarea. And as a good Jew, Peter never would have gone or allowed himself to be in such a place. Jews did not associate with Gentiles. It was part of their belief system. It wasn't just an arrogance about them. They just did not keep company with people who were not Jewish. It was simply not allowed for a devout Jew. And yet here he is, and he's there at this home because he has had this vision. In fact, it said it's a tra- he fell into a trance and had this vision that God gave him, and in which, in which God tells him to eat all kinds of unclean, off-limits food. And if you know the, the detailed regulations given to the Jews in the Old Testament, there was many different kinds of things they could not eat, and there they were on this sheet in this trance, and God tells them they are not off-limits anymore. So now he is going to visit this previously off-limits person who didn't fit within the boundaries the church had previously set. But now as they meet for both men, there's amazing new ways of seeing things. Amazing new ways of seeing things are discovered in the story. And so as Acts 10 continues on after verse 23, Cornelius and his family come to faith. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are are baptized, and it's a wonderful celebration in the household of Cornelius. And Peter himself says... uh, speaks of his new way of seeing in verses 34 and 35. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts those from every nation who fear him and do what is right. I now get it, he says, that God does not show favoritism just for my Jewish people, but he wants those from every nation to fear him and do what is right. It was a much bigger way of seeing now. And what, Peter, but what happened for Peter now was a, a big mission shift was coming now. The, the, shift, the mission was now shifting as a mission to the Gentiles. The text illustrates a major shift in mission that really changed the trajectory of the church. Peter was a leader of all the, the Christ followers, uh, now was confronted with a person that exposed this blind spot. How did Peter reconcile this opening up of the law, this invitation to a new way to see his faith across ethnic and cultural lines? Peter was shown a new vision. He was introduced to a new person that suggested a shift in the way he knew how to be faithful. The law, in a sense, now was actually being fulfilled. It was being fulfilled in a new and a fuller way. 
The Spirit was moving in a very powerful way and inviting followers in a new direction. It was a big mission shift. And now the mission was to all the peoples of the earth. But know that Peter's shift was not just a shift in perspective. It wasn't just a a new awareness. It wasn't just kind of an aha in his seeing and thinking. It was action. Peter took action. And as we read this story, his action was very much spirit-powered and and Christ-centered, Jesus-centered. It's so clear the way Luke tells the story. Luke, we believe, is the one who wrote uh, wrote the book of Acts. And as he tells it, he says the spirit was moving this whole thing. It's very much what God was doing in the life of Cornelius, in the life of, of Peter. Think about what might have been running through Peter's mind when he saw the, the new places where the good news was moving. None of this was what he knew or had done before, but God's leading was evident, so Peter followed. God was leading through his spirit. God was leading through an angel who spoke to Cornelius. God was leading through this vision or trance that Peter had. It was so clear that this was God-orchestrated and spirit-powered. And I love the action that Peter takes once he finally gets to Cornelius' house in verse 24. The action he takes, it's, it's all about Jesus. Basically, Acts, the rest of Act 10 is, is a wonderful description of the gospel. And it's a wonderful description of the impact of the resurrection. In fact, when I come around every Easter to the text that can be preached on, it's always the resurrection story at the end of the gospels. But always is this part of Acts 10. It's very much a power of resurrection story here. And so that's the action Peter takes. He roots it all in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what happens is that Peter then extends the call to Cornelius and his whole family comes to faith. They come to trust Christ for salvation. And they signify that by by then being baptized. It's amazing, really, Peter left behind what was known, what was practiced and considered faithful in order to follow where God was leading. And it's his, it's his obedience in this passage that allowed the church then to take the good news to the ends of the earth and to invite all people to experience and saving work of Jesus. It was a big mission shift, and he took action that was Christ-centered and spirit-led. Peter's perspective shift then calls us to consider where we are now as a church. And we look at briefly just a perspective shift for the church today. We need to ask the question, what are the blind spots that we face now? What are the things we still run up against in in the world? What blind spots do we have today? What ethnic blind spots are there? What cultural and gender-related blind spots are there? What economic and regional assumptions do we have that block us from understanding the fullness of how the Spirit wants to move in us and through us? Where are we being invited to shift, to change, and to grow? While we have made a great deal of progress in recent decades in terms of gender and race in the church, church with a big C, I believe we still have much, much work to do, gender and race. I prayed about whether to share this story, but I really feel that I I need to share it. Um, I said last week that the Friday night before, so a week ago Friday night, 10 of us were at the the Y-Men fundraising banquet uh, in Wheaton. It was a wonderful evening. It's where we received this beautiful calligraphy. I left it up here for another another week, and we were really affirmed as a church for our connection to Y-Men. It was a wonderful event, and the way the whole uh, thing rolled out and the relationships there and the people that were getting to know through YM was all good. But there was one glaring blind spot that bothered Pastor Diana and me. We talked about it later, and we were both kind of outraged. We didn't know it at the table until we talked later. Every time there was a man speaking at the platform, whether white or black, uh, the, the audience was giving their full attention. But Sharona Drake, who is one of the leaders, Sharona's been here. She helped lead the gospel choir last year. Sharona is one we're working with for our Christmas celebration a few weeks. 
Uh, Sharona is a, is a remarkable woman, very strong leader and capable uh, leader of Pearl, the women's division of, of, uh, of Y-Men. When she got up to speak, the room didn't quiet down. People kept talking. And, and these are good people. These are people who support this. These are mostly Christian people. And yet there was something going on that they didn't even realize this blind spot that they were not giving her the full attention that they were giving the men who had spoken. We have gender and race blind spots still that we don't even know is there. That's why they're called blind spots. And I think that's an area that God is calling us to press in. And some of our relationships, particularly with Lion Men and others, are hoping to open our eyes up. And some of the things that we're bringing to you as a congregation in terms of the area of race and racism to open our eyes up. I'm looking forward to the speaker that we've invited for MLK Sunday. Dave Swanson is a white pastor of a church in Bronzeville, a mostly African-American neighborhood. And, uh, and he has two adopted children who are African-American. And uh, David's going to speak to us about some of those blind spots that he's uncovered in his own life, in his own journey as a pastor. There's gender and race blind spots, but I think we also have very real economic and cultural blind spots as well. I recently read a book, actually, in full disclosure, I haven't read the last couple chapters, um, but I'm, I'm just about there. A book called, it's a, it's, it's a lot to wade through, but it's a book called When Helping Hurts, and the subtext is How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor, dot, 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 and Yourself. Diana mentioned that when she talked about mission trips, and sometimes we can do more harm than good, even though our intentions are good. This book is by two guys named Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. And the book deals with the many good intentions we have in all kinds of mission work that we do when we do service projects on a local basis or when we do mission trips. But the book, <clears throat> the authors, helps expose how we often bring our own agenda into something. We bring our own understanding of what the needs are. And, 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 and what we're blind to sometimes is that we are functioning as a dominant culture. For us, particularly as white Americans, whether we like the name or not, we are a dominant culture. And sometimes that affects how we see things or it affects what we do not see. And we tend to think that we have the answers because we have the resources. Or we understand what needs to be fixed in an area of poverty or in an area of the world when perhaps we don't fully understand everything that's going on. One particular blind spot that, brought, that Corbett and Figure deal with is, is assuming that the answer to alleviating poverty is only in providing material resources. The answer to alleviating poverty locally and globally is only in alleviating material poverty. And they say, not true. <laughs> That's part of it, certainly. But they share example after example of how, how that does not always work, uh, how, how, how it doesn't always work that way. Um, that sometimes a, a group will go in and, and, and for example, in, in an African country, go in and, and build a whole series of wells. And we rejoice about that. And the Americans who go in and donate the money and build the wells take pictures of them and they celebrate with the local people and the local people love having this well. And then they come home and they show slideshows to talk about this great thing that they've done in a foreign country. And somebody goes back three years later and realizes nobody taught them how to maintain them. There was no sense of ownership in the community. It was received as a handout. And three years later, the wells are not working and the, and, the, and the community is actually in worse shape now because the source of water they had is now gone and they need to even go farther away to get the water they need. It's that kind of example 
of not listening clearly, not getting past the blind spots of our dominant culture where we think we know the answers. And they say material poverty is only part of the problem. In listening to those that we seek to help and serve, we can uncover things like a social poverty or really a poverty of spirit where there's been defeat after defeat after defeat or the brokenness of, 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 of material poverty that breaks something inside and a lack of will that comes. We need to understand that kind of poverty as well. And then, of course, there's a spiritual poverty that we address in the midst of it also. And then there are systemic issues that can undermine what are our most noble and sincere and godly efforts. If We don't listen well. And if we aren't willing to face what our blind spots might be. Corbett and Fickert say this, that a path, found, a path forward is found not through providing resources to the poor, but by walking with them in humble relationships. We are getting this. We are learning, but there's still much to learn and much work to do. And this is leading to big mission shifts for us as well, to big mission shifts in this changing world. We come to it with the unchanging gospel. Last Sunday night, I had the privilege of being at Northbrook Covenant Church. They invited me uh, to come and speak at their, uh, their stewardship banquet. And it was really fun. They asked Megan first, and she couldn't do it, so I was second choice. But that's okay. I didn't mind that. Um, it's happened the other way before. So anyway, um, but I had a wonderful time there, and I met Chet and Jean Larson. And they're an older couple. They live at, the, at Covenant Village now at Northbrook. But they served for many years in the Democratic Republic of Congo, back when it was Zaire. Uh, and it hadn't even been Zaire that long. It had been the Belgian Congo when we were little kids. Remember that? Um, and they, we were discussing with them the changes, and we marveled at the changes that happened just in our mission field in, in Congo. And Chet said, you know, when we first went there, there were no ordained Congolese clergy. There were no Congolese doctors. There were no Congolese nurses. And now the whole church in Congo is a Congolese church. It's a national church. It's the CEUM, which is a, is, uh, those are French words that I can't pronounce, but it's the Covenant Church of, of Congo. And now the North American missionaries are there, are there because they've been invited by the CEUM to help in certain sorts of support roles. But there are fewer missionaries in Congo now than there used to be back in the Chet and Jean Larson days because they aren't needed because that church has, has come to life. And yet we still have vital partnerships there where we're listening, hopefully we're listening better to what are the real needs and what are the ways that we can provide assistance and help and development support to, to raise the, the, the level of living there. And as we have welcomed the Congolese guests here into our own church, and as a few have, of our members have gone over there, we find that we have much to learn from them. We find that we have much to learn from the church there, that the Covenant Church in Congo is much, much bigger than the Covenant Church in America. We come to understand that their faith in God and their experience of worship often is much more deep and more real than ours. They don't roll their eyes at a three-hour worship service or, or demand that it be one hour. They go with great joy and celebration in what God is doing in their midst. Their faith is something that's fleshed out in real ways and sometimes desperate, yes, very much desperate economic situations that still do need our help. But they're desperate economic conditions that would do us in and we would be blaming God and yet they rise up. We need to listen better. We need to learn from each other, listening and growing our awareness of the uniquenesses of culture, local, regional, and global. Right here in Naperville, there are different cultures at work now and growing that we need to understand better. So vital in our changing world. Learning to partner, not assuming that we have all the answers and the resources, is all part of the shift that we need to make. And it's an exciting shift that we're making. But as Peter took action that was spirit-powered and Jesus-centered, so shall we. 
our action also needs to be very much spirit-powered and spirit-led and Christ-centered. We're not just talking about making a difference. We here talk about making a kingdom difference, and the king is Jesus Christ. It's kingdom with a K. And that's another thing that I appreciate about this book is that Corbett and Fickert are very Christ-centered and evangelism-oriented in their approach to the issues that we face in the world. Let me just read a little bit from it for you. They say, we have asked thousands of evangelical Christians in numerous contexts this most basic question. Why did Jesus come to earth? And the vast majority of people say something like, quote, Jesus came to die on the cross and to save us from our sins so that we can go to heaven, unquote. While this answer is true, Jesus' message is an even more grand and sweeping epic than that. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I am the king who is bringing healing to the entire cosmos. If and only if you repent and believe in me, you will someday enjoy all the many benefits that my kingdom brings. Contrast the response of most evangelicals with the following passage concerning the nature and work of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy." For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's Colossians 1, 15 to 20. They go on and say, In this passage, Jesus Christ is described as the creator, sustainer, and reconciler of everything. Yes, Jesus died for our souls, but he also died to reconcile, that is to put into right relationship all that he created. This is what we sing every year in the Christmas carol. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Remember that verse? The curse is cosmic in scope, bringing decay, brokenness, and death to every speck of the universe. But as King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus is making all things new. This is is the good news of the gospel. King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. That's our theme for Advent, by the way. Hallelujah. King of kings and Lord of lords. We worship the newborn king. I put information about the book in the outline. If you're interested, pick one up. And I actually have, actually have there an invitation. If you would like to be part of a study group to read this together with me and some others, uh, I would welcome your emails And let me know that. I think it would be helpful for our church to grasp what's in here because it speaks of a new view. It speaks of removing blind spots and addressing our mission, and it does it from a very Christ-centered place. We've seen the perspective for Peter, the perspective for the church, and we finish by talking about a perspective shift for ourselves. We each need to ask, what are my blind spots a few weeks ago, it was the week before Halloween, Megan forwarded me some website that she'd found on different approaches to Halloween for Christian families. And we tend to kind of run the gamut on that. Some run far away, it's evil, it's satanic, don't touch it, don't do anything about it. Others say, well, you can kind of embrace the fun side of it. And others don't care, it's just a pagan holiday, whatever. But this was talking about how it might be used for an evangelistic kind of tool. And one thing that just struck me, and it stuck with me since then, it sort of colored how I've seen things. It said, 
Don't go to your church-sponsored harvest festival and leave your neighborhood this night. Stay home, set yourself up on your driveway with a fire pit and a couple lawn chairs, and be that family. You know, that family when you were a kid? Who was that family? The one that had full-size candy bars. Remember them? Be that family and get to know your community. And be somebody who loves the children in your neighborhood. Well, there was more on this website, but that just so stuck with me. That I want to be that kind of person. And it started to open up some blind spots for me in terms of my own neighborhood, but even how I view evangelism and the building of relationships with other people. It came home to me just on this last Thursday morning. I was supposed to meet somebody really early to go walking, and the weather was bad at the time, that, and we called it off, but I went outside, and it wasn't raining. It was, it was windy, and I just, I just started walking my neighborhood. And I, don't, I usually run, but I just started walking for about a half an hour, and I was just going to walk, and, and, and God just invited me to a time of prayer. So I was praying. I was walking all over the place, and um, it was real windy that morning, but it wasn't raining at the time. And I came around the corner. I, came by the, I was almost home, and I came by the house. It's just sort of kitty corner from us. And uh, it's a home that had been, there'd been sort of a troubled family there for years. And the home was in, in great disrepair. And uh, I could tell something was going on there, but I'd, I'd never met the family. Well, lo and behold, a few months ago, there was foreclosure. The house was closed down. Some flippers came in and cleaned it up, fixed it up, redid the yard, redid the inside of the house. And now there's a for sale sign in the yard. I started to pray, oh, Lord, bring a, bring a nice, godly family into our neighborhood. And God stopped me and said, Don't pray for that. Pray that for whoever comes to that house, that you would show them the love of Christ. I didn't hear those words, but it was very clear that God was leading me in that direction. Pray that God would bring somebody, even if they're troubled, and maybe especially if they are, even if they're a challenge to our neighborhood, that there would be people that I could reach out to and love. This is pretty big for me, (laughs) but it's very clear for me. It was a blind spot that God kind of ripped away from me, probably knowing I was going to preach this sermon in a few days. He does that sometimes. <laughs> I believe it was a spirit-powered, spirit-led thing as he was leading me in prayer. And it was the love of Christ. That's what I want to do. What are your blind spots? Maybe if I've mentioned, as I mentioned gender and race or, or looking at, at the world. Maybe some of the blind spots of, of being part of our dominant culture, some of the things that maybe are becoming aware to you now, and I encourage you to press into those and ask those questions and not be afraid uh, to listen to the answers. And then as some of those blind spots become aware, let's finish by considering what are some of the actions that we can take. And as we consider some of the actions that we might take here, I want to take into account the, the many shifts that we've talked about over the last 10, 11 weeks. We've looked at things that have hopefully kind of shifted us out of a a sense of complacency in the church. We get to sort of an easy place where church just fits in with everything else we're doing. But what about the depth of what God wants to do through us? We've talked about getting out of our comfort zone and leaving the comfortable and the safe place to step out and get to know somebody different and to do something new as opposed to a casual faith that comes easy. Are we willing to consider the blind spots and consider the actions we might take to open our eyes to new areas? I've just listed several options here, and they're each open-ended sentences. You can write them down in the, the bulletin. There's not much room there, but I just pray that one of these would, would capture you. The first one says, an act, an actions that will deepen my relationship with God. And that, that's, that's easy. We always ask that question. We go on a retreat. We do a camp, and we know the answer, right? Read my Bible and pray more. Okay, that's easy. But really, what action do you need to take to deepen not your spiritual activity, but your relationship with God? 
That might be the action God calls you to first before any of these other things. And then secondly, related to that, what action will I take that will move that relationship with Christ to bear more fruit in this tangible way? Not just to kind of feed my soul and spirit. That's so important. But what fruit might be coming forth that God wants me to bear? (laughs) Where I work, where I live, with the relationships that I'm in. One week here we talked about turning from me to we to he. And that's another one here. What would help me turn from just me to, to the we? And by we here we mean our faith community. Where are the places that I can offer a little bit more to this group of people that will strengthen us as a community? that seeks to bring bring hope to our our world. Next is what will help me, what action will I need to take to get me in touch with the hurting, the marginalized, and pain? We can easily isolate ourselves from it, and yet we've had our eyes open a little bit to what's going on in the world around us. We've talked about it. Megan hit a few weeks ago the issue of domestic violence and abuse, just one area of pain that is so real and so pervasive when you begin to peel peel back the layers on that and let the blind spots be taken away. What are we learning in our relationships with bridge clients? What are we learning in our relationships with Wyman? What are we learning just in the relationships you have in your neighborhood where you're realizing that there's hurt there that you hadn't seen before? What do we need to do to be in better touch with that in our lives? What actions do we need to take that will move us out of a comfort zone? And what is a specific place? And I'm following up from a couple weeks ago when we talked about, that was our intergenerational Sunday when the kids were in here. and We talked about moving out of our comfort zone to express the love of God to, and we had several options for you, What's your answer there? What are actions that will increase my awareness of the world? Maybe it's being part of the study book. Maybe it's part of just uh, uh, going through some websites on, on statistics in the world and where engagement is happening to the gospel. And then finally, what actions will I take that will increase my engagement with the needs of the world? I'm not looking to add to your already busy life. Maybe I'm asking you to take a couple things out of your busy life because this is so important. This is the truth of God. This is the gospel. This is the only hope for the world. What happened in Paris drained away hope. ISIS is a threat that we can't pin down. It's like, not like a foreign enemy country that we can just go and, and deal with. There is evil in the world. What is our hope? Hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we need to engage with what he's doing and take this action. What are the shifts that we need to take in our schedule, in our priorities, in our relationships that will get us closer and tied into what God is doing? I'm going to give you just a moment to reflect on that, and then I'll close a prayer. And we have a, I, I love the song we're singing in closing. We did it a few weeks ago. You have called me higher. Be ready to be called higher as we focus now for a moment. Spirit of God, we ask you to move in a mighty way. Help us, first of all, even to be willing to discover our blind spots. And then in your powerful moving, Lord, peel them back and help us see in some new ways. And Spirit, open up our hearts to places where you are leading us to take action, to be people of hope, people of the gospel, people of reconciliation, followers of the King. Thank you, Lord, for your call on our life. We pray this in your name. Amen.